They tried to claim that Tom bent down at a time when he knew the forklift was there and knew the forklift was moving and was in the blind spot and put himself in harm's way. And one of the defenses to the case, which was very insulting to us and the jury obviously didn't buy, was, well, it's just a foot. I was shocked. It was kind of, it surprised me. It definitely surprised me. It's almost like they could literally say whatever they want. From the Chicagoland law firm of Selvi, Shostak & Pritchard, this is Beating Goliath, a plaintiff's pursuit of justice. I'm your host, Marcy Mangan. Case number one, part two, Tom Newhagen. In the first episode of Beating Goliath, you met Tom Newhagen, a veteran from Wisconsin who was horrifically injured when his foot was crushed by a forklift while working at McCormick Place Convention Center in Chicago. In a few short seconds, Tom's life was changed forever. But his accident should have never happened. After the team at Selvi, Shostak, and Pritchard met Tom and began to work with him, they uncovered shocking evidence about crucial safety procedures that were disregarded by the company the forklift driver had been hired by. They knew that this case wasn't just about Tom's injury and making sure he was compensated for a lifetime worth of pain and disability. It was about ensuring this company was held responsible for the shortcuts they had taken. This company, GES, did not want that to happen, as attorney Patrick Selvey Jr. explains. One of the things the defense approached us with is they said, hey, look, will you drop your punitive damages claim and try this case as an admitted liability case. And what that would have meant is we put on no evidence of the conduct. We put on no evidence of prior conduct or anything about training or certification. All that evidence gone. It's only evidence about Tom's injury. And the jury decides what the compensation will be and no punitive damages. We felt very strongly Tom did nothing wrong. And we were going to have the jury say that. It wasn't just a case of proving that the accident was not Tom's fault. For punitive damages to be awarded, Patrick and the team had to determine if GES had acted with a reckless disregard for safety when it came to implementing its protocols. In other words, had GES cut corners to prioritize speed over safety? And so you might think, well, does GES employ all these folks that are operating forklifts? And the answer to that question is, most of them, the answer is no. In fact, GES works with a specialist union at trade shows that supplies half the forklift operators. What Patrick Selvey Jr. and the rest of the attorneys then discovered is that all the drivers supplied by the union went through a rigorous certification process. They simply were not allowed to operate a forklift unless this certification was up to date. Due to the skill set required to operate these huge machines, those certifications needed to be renewed every three years without fail. They hired them, they would show up, and they would never not once be asked, can you please present your forklift certification card? They wouldn't ask. And so what they would do is they would hire people that they thought were good for their business process. And their business process had little to do with safety and a lot to do with productivity. Productivity trumped safety every day of the week. And it wasn't fair to people like Tom. So Fred Nearings, who's the defendant forklift operator, Mr. Nearings, he had a long history of being able to operate a forklift. And what I came to learn was that, sure, he had operated a forklift for decades, but he had never gone through the certification process 
My name is Patrick A. Salvi, Sr. I am the managing equity partner for Salvi, Shostak & Pritchard. I was shocked that this big company could have a system in place that did not preclude someone who did not have certification to operate a forklift. But they really didn't have an explanation for why they didn't independently make sure. When they had their daily safety meetings, as they called them, it sounded as though those were two to three minute worthless meetings that otherwise could have been very worthwhile. It could have saved Tom's foot. But instead, as we learned, they had no process because they didn't care. And so we were trying to prove that GES was willful and wanton by virtue of not having ensured that their forklift operators were trained and certified. And part of the jury's consideration of that question is whether or not this was a pattern of behavior. Preparing for trial isn't just about collecting evidence and becoming an expert on the subject matter. It's also about making sure your witnesses, and most importantly, your client, are as prepared as possible for what might happen in court, as Patrick Selvey Sr. explains. I prepare my witnesses very uh, intensely in that I very meticulously uh, abstract their depositions and review all of their uh, documents that might be related to that witness. In my case, a lot of medical records, et cetera. And then I prepare their uh, direct examination, what I anticipate to be the cross-examination, what areas we might want to come up in terms of redirect examination. Then I meet with them as frequently as I can and uh, go through the direct examination and prepare them and, you know, based on their deposition and, and so forth. You know, we talk about what the expectations are about what their testimony will be. By the time you go to trial, you have an idea, certainly, as to what the defense is going to be. But the exact manner in which they're going to execute it remains a mystery. And you, and you need to be prepared for it because anything can come up at any time. So if some sort of line of attack comes up during the course of a witness's examination and you're not prepared for it, you can't say, Judge, can we take a, a two-day break? I'd like to go through the whole file and make sure that I have the right response with this witness. It doesn't work that way. You got to be ready for anything. You got to be on your toes. In the months leading up to the trial, Tom was still enduring intense physical therapy sessions on a daily basis but he was also having to work closely with the team to make sure he was as prepared and confident as possible before he walked into the courtroom. Every witness is nervous. They've never done it before. It's unnatural. I mean, how many times do you have to sit down in a chair, take an oath? You've got to your right uh, person in a big black robe, very intimidating, sitting a little higher than you are and issuing rulings and pretty much in control of the room. Then you've got, uh, you know, six, eight, ten, however many lawyers on both sides in the courtroom, all dressed to the nines in suits. Uh, you know that they're very highly educated. They probably know every in and out of the case. And then you've got 12 decision makers sitting there in the box staring at you, <laughs> assessing you, judging you. And so it's an intimidating situation. And so what I always tell witnesses is I say, look, just focus on me. Don't put any pressure on yourself. Put the pressure on me. If you're going to say something in front of this jury, it's because I asked you to say it. And if you give an answer and you left something out, well, then it's my job to elicit it. 
meticulously researching the subject matter of your case, planning your cross-examinations, and preparing your witnesses is only part of what goes into getting ready for a trial. It's not just about understanding what evidence you're presenting, but considering how you will present the evidence that's crucial in today's courtrooms. My name is Cesar Salinas. I'm the IT director for Salvi Shostak and Pritchard. Technology has become so much a part of people's lives. People are on their phone. People are, are watching YouTube. People are, are on TikTok and they consume their media that way. You know, before you, you'd go to the corner street and pick up a Sun-Time or a Chicago Tribune and read a newspaper. Now everything's digital. One of the major components of a trial case that has gone digital is depositions. A deposition is a sworn, out-of-court, spoken testimony of a witness. Historically, they are recorded and then turned into a written transcript that can then be used later in court. But for our cases here at Salvi, Shostak, and Pritchard, we use video, as Caesar explains. It's more impactful. And you can see the jurors nod and, and agree with it because, uh, and it becomes more impactful because they can see the deposition, the person actually saying what they're saying on video. In Tom's case, perhaps the most important piece of evidence that was prepared was a video that was presented to the jury and detailed what a regular day in Tom's life was like. Typically, a day in life video will show how the injury impacted the client on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, on a, uh, from the moment they wake up to their daily activities to, to how they get ready for bed. Tom's was no different. It showed him having to get his prosthesis on, get around throughout the day, go through his rehab. And uh, it's impactful to see how an injury like that can affect a person's life. You know, people don't really think much about their feet. It's not something that, that comes in the forefront. But when you lose your foundation, when you lose your ability to walk uh, and you're dealing with pain, that stuff the jury can, get, can relate to. This IT work is painstaking. It can take hundreds of hours to prepare. But Caesar's job isn't over once the case begins. During the trial, he needs to present exactly the right piece of content at exactly the right time. It's a lot of pressure. So much, in fact, that he refers to it as being in the hot seat. The reason why that's called that is you want to be able to not have to interrupt the narrative that the attorney is trying to play out. Uh, you know, if things aren't working, if things aren't in the right order or if things are taking too long to present, then it slows down what he's trying to say. And I'm a big football fan and uh, I liken the hot seat to the offensive line in that you don't hear about them that much. They're not, they're not the glamorous position, but when the quarterback gets sacked or when the running back gets stopped, it's because of the offensive line's fault. We practice a lot. I practice a lot, but it's always nerve wracking whenever you're trying to present something and you're, you're hoping everything works. When a trial is ongoing, it's not just the time in the courtroom that's intense or stressful. It's stressful all of the time. When you are up at 4 a.m. and going to bed at 11 or midnight and you're consistently changing, reviewing, amending, redrafting your examinations of witnesses, your closing argument, um, and you're doing that on a daily basis and you're facing motions from the defense, the defense pretty much every day brought motions against us trying to say that our willful and wanton claims should be uh, dismissed. Inevitably, you have to put all your other cases aside. You have to put your family obligations aside because you don't want to look back on the trial and on your work 
on behalf of your client and feel like you could have worked harder. You could have done more. You you go on adrenaline. You don't take in as many calories as you'd like. By the end of it, your suits seem like they're fitting a little looser. You're not getting as quality of sleep because you're waking up thinking about things. Whenever you go through a trial with somebody, which is very intense, it's a very, very, very close relationship that develops between the lawyer and the client. You know, it's a very close relationship because uh, there's so much at stake and you really bond and we're very good at kind of getting to know our clients really well. As the trial went on, one tactic the defense used was to downplay Tom's awful injury. The argument was at the end of the day, it's, it's just his foot. He's not paralyzed. He's not brain damaged. It's a foot injury. And so that has limitation to its value. And our argument was that it's not as simple as that. And uh, this was a particularly gruesome injury and not only resulted in disability and certainly disfigurement, but uh, also it was a uh, source of a lot of pain. And you have to live with all these uh, injuries and disabilities and pain, which probably are going to be more challenging as you get to be older in your fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh decade of life. And so as we remind the jury, they have to remember that their jury verdict is not just for today, but it's for the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. Your foot is really important. Walking is very important. Not being in pain every day is really important. Tom was not the type who wanted to get pity from anybody else or be a slug. And he felt bad every time he had to take a break. So there's a physical aspect, there's emotional, and it was really a profound injury. As well as trying to downplay Tom's life-changing injury, the defense's main argument was that Tom, not their uncertified driver, was to blame for what happened. They tried to claim that Tom bent down at a time when he knew the forklift was there and knew the forklift was moving and was in the blind spot and put himself in harm's way. But as Patrick Selvey Jr. explains, for a huge vehicle like the forklift involved, proper procedure is key. Any experienced, certified operator would know that because of the way the vehicle is constructed, there are multiple blind spots and you should never move, let alone turn, without the okay of a spotter, the person on the ground who is as much a part of the team as the driver. In this case, the uncertified driver, Fred Nearinks, didn't follow that procedure and wait for his spotter, Chris Nash, to give him the all clear. The spotter is there not just to clean stuff away from your path of travel, but also to, when you're moving, guide you, tell pedestrians to stay away, warn pedestrians, tell the operator that the coast is clear, look in the blind spots to ensure that the coast is clear. But instead, Fred Nearings, because he's fast, he went at a time when it wasn't safe to go, and then the tail swing swung out and ran over Tom's leg first knocked him down to the ground, hit him in the hip. He went down onto his side. And then as the forklift continued to move, ran right over the back of his foot. So he risked Tom's life and limb to save a few seconds. And it's something that in all likelihood would not have happened had he been trained and certified. The defense tried to convince the jury that Tom was to blame. But there were key moments in the trial where those arguments just fell down. Here's Aaron Bader. There was an independent witness who worked for the forklift company. And they thought, and when I say they, they mean the defense. And they thought he would help them on on their case that Tom did something wrong. 
And the testimony did not go well for them. He kind of basically said Tom didn't do anything wrong. He criticized the other operator for what he was doing. He wasn't really taking sides. He was kind of an independent guy, but he he helped us more than hurt us, which is not what the defense intended. It's always a difficult experience for the plaintiff when they finally take the stand. The defense also has a job to do, and that can feel intimidating, as it did for Tom. Even during my testimony, the opposing counsel was basically like kind of almost almost like trying to throw me under the bus, I felt like, or, or basically putting words in my mouth. But it's almost like they could literally say whatever they want to an extent. When the plaintiff takes the stand and says, here's what happened and here are my injuries, they're bearing their soul to the jury and their credibility is being assessed and their life is being assessed and their future is being assessed. And the verdict is the statement on all of that. And so you feel that with the client. And if you don't feel that with the client, then maybe you shouldn't be trying cases. Once all the witnesses have taken the stand and all the evidence has been presented, the closing arguments take place. The closing arguments are a chance for both the prosecution and the defense to reiterate their key arguments, sum up their case, remind jurors about key evidence, and encourage them towards a favorable verdict. One thing I always do when I close a case, closing argument, is say at the end, thank them for their time and tell them that in this case, Tom and I will be in the courtroom when they return their verdict. And I think it's just important for them to be reminded that, you know, they're going to have to face him in open court with their verdict. After the closing arguments, there's just one thing left to do. Wait. Waiting for a verdict is absolutely nerve-wracking. It's one of the most painful experiences Yeah, it's a very uh, nerve-wracking period. They usually last uh, many hours, sometimes several days even. You know, it's just, uh, there's a lot of anxiety. It somewhat made me nervous because I wasn't sure what was either making it go longer. Finally, the call came in. And then you know that in about 10 minutes, your life's going to change forever. Then you and your team on the elevator ride down from the office and in the walk over to the courthouse and the elevator ride up to the courthouse and then sitting in the courtroom until the jury walks out is all about reading the tea leaves. And then when you get into the room and the jury walks in, it's just an escalation of your heart rate. And it just goes up and up and up. And then they hand the piece of paper to the judge for the judge to read. And you're sitting there with your client right next to you who needs that win far more than you do as the lawyer. We, the jury, find for Thomas Newhagen and against Global Experience Specialist, Inc. and Frederick Nearings and assess the damages on count one, negligence, in the sum of... But sometimes the verdict is not the end. Sometimes the verdict is just the beginning of yet another battle. In the next episode of Beating Goliath, A Plaintiff's Pursuit of Justice, a judge's surprising decision means that the fight isn't over just yet. The very interesting thing about a trial is you never know quite what's going to happen. So there's always going to be some surprises, some things you didn't anticipate, but you never know with 100% certainty how it's going to all play out. Did the trial court err in some way? Did the jury look at things uh, the wrong way? 
And I was surprised. I was surprised. And we knew we had to appeal that aspect. There was a whole other battle ahead of us. Special thanks to Tom Newhagen and all the experts and attorneys who took the time to talk to us. Thank you as well to our production team at Lemon Pie. Beating Goliath was written and produced by Sam Walker, editing and sound design by Eric Siriani, and executive producers are Katie Bush and Eric Jacobson. To find out more, head to selvilaw.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Marcy Mankin. Thank you for listening.